Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you for sharing the show. And I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media, as I always do, but they put a lot of work into making this show great. And they have a lot of other great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. It's been an entire year that we've been doing this show. It's really hard to believe that... uh, this little idea turned into something that I look forward to and I get so many amazing messages from you all and I hope that you guys continue to send me messages and guest suggestions. They've been super helpful. Uh, You can reach me at kraz plus one at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z plus one at gmail.com. And you may have heard that we're now launching the guest list, which is a premium version of the show where you get to hear the current shows without ads, but you'll also get uh, exclusive bonus episodes and exclusive content. And we're going to be building some really, really cool ways for you guys to interact with me and ask questions that I'll answer on the bonus episodes. And it's only five bucks a month or 50 for the year. Uh, If you want to sign up or get more info on that, go to OsirisPod.com. So we're a year or so into this pandemic and we're starting to see more shows being announced and things opening up a little bit, which is really great news. I'm excited to start playing again, getting out and seeing friends again. We're still masking up and still taking all the precautions, but it's just great to start to be social again. And I just really am excited to to play music, get out on the road and do some festivals. And I hope to see all of you out there soon. My guest on the show today is someone who I've been a fan of for a very, very long time. I've also been fortunate enough to work with him on stage in various different formations. Uh, One of my favorite memories is playing with George Porter, Zigaboo, and John Medeski as part of the Foundation of Funk. We've gotten to do that numerous times, but I'm a huge fan of all of his work. The early days of Medeski, Martin, and Wood were major inspirations for Lettuce, for Soul Live, and and a lot of the different projects that I've worked in. He's also worked with John Schofield. He's an incredible composer and pianist. Uh, So we get into some really, really cool discussions uh, in this interview, including how he came together with Jeff Firewalker Schmidt and created their new project, Saint Disruption. It's a really soulful and politically charged album where they collaborate with some great singers and great musicians from the Asheville area. Their first single, Choke a Man is out now and they have an official video on YouTube. So we get into all of that and a lot more in this interview, but first I'm going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. All right, he's a composer, an arranger, an amazing pianist, and one of my favorite organ players of all time. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, John Medeski. It's been fun kind of going back through your catalog the last couple of days uh, and checking out this new project. Uh, I haven't heard the whole record yet, but um, the Saint Disruption stuff is really cool. So I want to hear a little bit about the concept there, what you guys are doing. And I heard, you know, the your kind of co-founder, Jeff Firewalker, you guys met in the Amazon. Is that true? We met in, yeah, in Ecuador, in wow. the Amazon. I was visiting these... Uh, I guess healers, you call them. I don't know what you call them, but they're yeah. the Coranderos there. And uh, yeah, and then 
<laughs> you know, it's out there in the jungle. And then all of a sudden there's this other guy there, Jeff. It's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> so that's where we met. And he was there for, you know, whatever, to st- he was studying something of what, you know, what they do. And yeah, that was pretty wild. And we just kind of kept, we've kept in touch ever since. He, like we brought some of these Sequoia elders to the States and he really helped us out, get the letters together. Cause he's right. like, you know, he's got a, he's like a doctor and all doctorates. And I don't know if you know, he's a t- you know, total smart smarty pants guy yeah, yeah you know really really you know like he's very you know scientific great and just big heart he helped us you know get some letters together for the visas to get them here and they we, we brought them here and we just kept in touch loosely and then he came to me with this track with umar that's kind of how it started really he was just hey you know i've got this track and i want some piano on it and i and he had this piano part kind of a little written out you know and sort of, te- you know, comped in there and I checked it out and I, so I did that first and then I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of hearing something different. So let me just, I'm just going to do it. I have nothing to lose. Just send them a few <laughs> things that I'm. Patreon um, is featured on the tracks I heard. Was he on that track initially or was it? No, he's not okay. on that. This is a different track. I guess oh. this track, maybe, you haven't heard this track yet. It's called okay. um, Pain Storms. Have you heard that one yet? I haven't heard that one yet. Well, that's, that's one that brought me in. So he, oh, so cool, I said, cool. so I said, he, he has something that's really cool beat, like this messed up, like, you know, sort of where's the one that might totally my kind of beat, you know, yeah, like, yeah, 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 but, yeah. but you know, like, and, um, but it, you know, it had this kind of dark drive to it. And so I just sort of did played, you know, I just played with the poem and played like this, you know, what I was hearing and I sent it to him, not expecting anything. And he really liked it and decided, Hey, you know, oh, that's, that's, you know, I want to use that. So it kind of started like that for me, ah, like cool, cool. just out of like, just, I almost didn't even do it. You know what I mean? It's one of those right. things where, like, you know, whatever, you know how it is. You show up at a session, you just want to do what people want, get it done, right, right, you know, right. give them what they want. And I could usually sort of do that, you know. So, but I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to do like what I'm feeling on right. this one. So I did. And that ended up working. And that's sort of how it grew. And then I was like, wow, okay, so this, he's open to this, you know. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? And so we started this, you know, and then you realize like just how many things we have in common and share, of course. especially, you know, with our South American connections, you know. And, yeah. You know, being into that whole world, the healing world of, you know, the jungle and the Andes Mountains, you know, it's been a big part of my life for the past 15 years. You know, that's like I've been doing, I think I go there every year, you know. Right. And I've talked to you a bit about that, but I'm curious, like, what brought you there initially? Like, what what was the inspiration to go down there in the first place? Where I met Jeff, I went because I had this, I was in Europe on tour and I had this thing that's called a cluster headache, which is literally one of the most painful things on medical, I mean, medical record. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've played, you know, I've had kidney stuff. I've, I've never canceled a gig. Right, you right. Know, basically, like, I don't, I mean, I'll play, I played through, you know, Smash Finger, whatever. Yeah. I, I won't, you know, just, you know, back in the day in New York, just, you know, one arm. I only had one, I dislocated my shoulder, but I just went and did the gig with my left arm. You know, it's yeah. like, fine. Whatever, I just never can. But this thing took me down. I mean, I couldn't get through it. Like, I mean, it's listed as one of the most painful things on medical record. Right. They call them suicide headaches because people get them. They're chronic. They come back every year. And it's like an <sighs> eight or 10 day period where you just, wow, really? yeah, you can't control it. You feel it coming. And it's just like, it's a nightmare, man. And so I knew about these guys. I had actually gone to sort of a workshop like thing that they did in Costa Rica, a retreat. And I met them there and I was like, you know, doctors, they don't, the Western medicine has got nothing for it. You know, it's like, oh, right. you know, you, you can, what you can do is you can find some combination of crazy painkillers that might help it a little bit. Like morphine does not stop. Nothing stops. This wow. Thing. And anything, I'm sure anything you take also would just knock you out. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, t- yeah. I mean, I got three shots of morphine in the hospital Yeah, and it didn't even make it, didn't reduce it even an iota. Wow. 
I mean, it's, it's some weird thing, you know, I don't know what it is. I mean, it making a migraine is nothing like, you know, right. I know migraines are terrible, but it's really like, this is like yeah, people level. jump out of windows. Right. Right. <laughs> so Crazy. I was like terrified, man. So I was like, I just like knew that these guys had this whole other thing and I'm like, I'm going to go down there and work with them. Cause it felt like it was more than just, you know, physiological. It's like there's something going on. So I went down there and worked with them for just there for two weeks, you know, yeah. and that's what brought me down there to work with them. And then I guess Jeff went there to sort of study what, what they do to the plants and all the stuff and how they work right. with the plants and stuff. So yeah, that's where we met, you know. And these were like ceremonies, like daily ceremonies. Was it ayahuasca or was it all very, a combination of things? It was daily, um, you know, a daily certain like dietary things or just yeah. hanging out there, being with them. And then like, you know, maybe five, we probably did three or four or five ceremonies, you know. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And did you end up changing your diet from that point or changing? Not permanently. Things? I mean, yeah. not permanently. I mean, I have a halfway decent diet most of the time yeah. anyway, you know, yeah. but um, no, there was no, it was really just like, they fixed it up wow. and it never, you know, so far. And you haven't had one back. since? No. Amazing. No. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. But that's, that's what brought me to that, to this particular spot, because I knew that, the, the, you know, these guys, like they, they had first contact like 70, 80 years ago. They worked the same way they've been working for thousands of years. Right. There's, you know, it's, it's a deep lineage and tradition. And I just have heard so many stories about the stuff that they've pulled off, you know, yeah. made stage four cancers and things like that wow. completely wiped out. I mean, it's so, I was just like, I'm going to go to these guys because I knew about them. I had a connection with them. Right. Right. Yep. Incredible. So you guys met when you first went down. Yeah, I was. We were down okay. there. My wife and I were down there, yeah. and then there's this guy. Yeah, <laughs> this other white dude yeah. in the jungle. Right, you know, right. like I'm like, and he was, you know, really nice guy, really great guy. Just you know, very, you know, you talked to him, very enthusiastic and yeah. energetic, and you know. And so he, and so he kind of makes tracks, and he's an engineer producer. Does he play play instruments on the record too? Well, I think you know, I mean, he's ultimately a scientist who also used to be a musician, and now I think he's had this. I think he told you a story about he had this sort of calling to start writing songs again right now, and. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's the other thing that I liked about it. I, you know, I liked where he's coming from. That like he's really coming from this place of like, you know, he's not just making music to get women or right be popular or make money. <laughs> he's doing it because like he's, he it's really like a call. You know, he's feeling this like deep you know <laughs> thing, this deep connection. Like that's his next move in life. You know, to help because he wants to help people. You know, right. And, and that so, is kind of the mission statement of this project too, is you guys are raising money for various charities for the Amazon and yeah. Well, uh, I, mean, I think it's also just music. It's, I mean, I think we, as we're putting this together, we're realizing more and more, it's just music itself. Right. You know? Right. I mean, you, I mean, I think, you know, we know this, you know this, but you know, we get caught up in, there's so many aspects, you know, especially to being a professional musician and surviving, oh, yeah. you know, that like there's yeah. certain things that we lose touch with the original original reason why you loved music in the first place you oh, know? Yeah. and what it really does for you and what it can do for people, you know? Yeah, and it's yeah. sort of like, it's about that too. That like music itself is just important. It's a healing thing. It's really right. good. And it's not like, Oh, it, music has to be a certain style. It has to be like, you know, a gong or singing bowls to be healing. I mean, for me, Ray Charles, you know, I had, you know, major healing experiences at a Ray Charles concert. You right, know? right. <laughs> Just like it's, you know, or, or whatever, you know, it could be anything. I think it could be different for different people. I don't feel like, oh, it has to be, you know, shamanic music or, you know, right, right. it's only healing. I just, music is just, it can be, and it's all about, you know, your relationship. There's so many aspects to it, but I just feel like, you know, that's part of the mission too, is like just to like, just give music I don't know, props for that again. Right, like, right. You know, the, popular, yeah. the music, it can be popular music, it can be funky, but it can also be like, you know, political. It can be, I mean, it's obvious to, you know, if you really listen a lot to rap and, 
in, you know, in hip hop now, it's in that music, you know, yeah. this political, this like forward thinking social edge, right. but really right. a lot of popular music, it's not there, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's not, it's not at the forefront. There are people doing things in their lives that care about it, but the music itself, like you think about, you know, 60s and 70s some of the songs you know what they were you know what they were talking about you know yeah yeah and though that was popular music which is kind of crazy when you yeah. think about it now what was there music incorporated into in the healing down when you were in the amazon or like was, oh, were they, yeah that's they, they sing and they wow. sing like in this yeah and like you, you'll be sitting there for like you know and it's a couple hours before they start that you know it's like an all-night thing it goes from eight until the next morning till sunrise right. You know? right and around midnight they just start singing and it'll be and if whoever's there if it's one guy it's one guy but if there's three or four guys three or four of the like you know coranderos the healers they start singing and they sing they sing in this other this language from another place right you know right. and it's really like nothing i've ever heard before it's ridiculous but they sort of and they sort of follow each other it's like it's not really harmony it's kind of more like heterophonic i guess you call it where it's like the same melodies follow each other but they can maybe be in different places and it's it's unreal wow <laughs> yeah it's so the most, I mean, i'd love to get somehow get a good recording of it out there so you know in some way someday right right and then so you and jeff did you guys start making music in this pat like since the pandemic started or was the concept there before that no it's kind of started then he just reached yeah. out to me he said yeah. hey you got time for this so i did i just did it you know and then it just kind of grew from there and then it was like oh well, i got this you know then he started playing me you you want to play some of these other songs? Yeah. So I was it. And then I ended up like uh, mixing one of the songs, Flight 19, which right, is those right. nice kind of like put a bunch of keyboards on and then did the mix, you know? And he has a studio down in Asheville, right? He has a home studio and he's been working with this, um, this really great producer down there too. Cool. For, the whole thing is very Asheville centric, which I also think is cool. Yeah. I noticed that a bunch of the, like most of the artists and yeah. it's kind of a collective. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there, Asheville's, like, you know, you know, it's a cool scene. It's, it's a, a great scene. Like, I love it. Down and one there. of the oases, you know, when we, it's one of the places you really look forward to landing on tour. You know, yeah. I always Asheville. try to extend my stay. I've like changed my flight so many times from Asheville because I like hanging out there. And plus, that studio Echo Mountain is there. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and I just love the little. I love that town. It's just a a great vibe. Yeah. Exactly. It's amazing. You know. So. And it's just kind of, you know, and I think consequently there is like this sort of creative community there, but it yeah. hasn't really been, you know, hear about it much. You know, you know about, right. like, we know Warren, you know, we know Warren came from Asheville, yeah, Warren Hayes. Of course, yeah. And, and, you know, but you don't hear that. So it's kind of, I think it's cool that it's like, you know, they're really like uh, pumping up that community with this art, you know, visual artists, yeah. everything. Yeah. You know, really. So I think that, I like that aspect of it too. I love Asheville. You know, I, I had a connection. I used to go to I used to go right outside Asheville into the mountains there every year when I was a kid growing up. Oh, really? Okay. To Highlands, North Carolina. Yeah, we just would end up there. For right, a and weeks, you were you summer. were in Florida. You grew up in Florida, right? Like I Fort did. Lauderdale area. I sure did. Yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, I that that kind of that threw me. I was I always thought you were like a Northeast guy for some reason. No, yeah. man. I you know I went up to school you know in Boston, and that was then I stayed up there. Well, I mean, South Florida. A lot of northeasterners down there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. My dad's there. It's yeah. not like the deep south, but you know, yeah. it is still got a. It's its own vibe, especially back then. Especially talking about the seventies, right? You know, Florida was its own culture, like really musically too. Everything. When yeah, and, and you. I know you started playing piano at five. Um, yeah. Where did you have musical? parents were they my dad played some piano like he could get he could do like about an hour's worth of like entertaining at a party you right know? right you know you could hang out you play like like tea for two and in the mood and like you know 
more and all these kind of old tunes. And so, and he used to sit me up at the piano and play with him. Like when I was before that, you know, when I was really little, there's pictures of me as a baby. So he would, and he, he basically taught me in the mood, you know, and he called it shake a baby. That's what he called it. <laughs> I might be, re- I might be revealing a little too much about myself right here, Chris, but and and he would just go, you know, it's a it's a you know it's a blues form, right? One, yeah. and he would just say one, two, three, for the one fourth, whatever you know, for whatever chord it was, and I would just play the one, and then go to the four when he said two and one, and then five for the, you know. So he just, you know, that's that was that, and I started taking classical piano when I was five, you know. And right, right. My mom was just super into it, like you know, she didn't play music, but she was like really, you know, forced me to practice. You know, it was like encouraged me right. <laughs> to, you know to practice they were really encouraging the whole time with music yeah i don't know how is it with you i, I imagine your parents are, are into it too you know your dad totally reminds me of my dad like he wasn't a yeah. professional piano player but he would sit down at at a you know we had a piano in our living room and he would entertain the guests you know what i mean he'd like start yeah. jamming and, uh, and he had a couple of friends that he'd jam with and that was their thing and that for me i just wanted to hang it just seemed like a cool you yeah. know, and, and I'd pick up an instrument, sound like crap. And they'd be like, oh, you know, what? practice a little and then we'll let you jam with us. So that was my, <laughs> why I'd go to my well, room and I'd start trying to figure yeah. it out. So were there like particular players or artists that, that kind of made you want to be a player? You know, like what were you listening to when you were first starting to play? Well, I started, I started you know, I started taking classical piano. So I, I learned right, right. to read music and I was playing cla- all the basic beginning stuff, Bach, Mozart, you know, that stuff. And, you know, it's weird. I've been sort of thinking about this more recently, about how, like, I think, you know, as for a kid, man, it's like, I don't know, you know, it's just really good for you to play music. I think for Mm. me, you know, and I feel like, you know, I sort of had this, my first musical sort of like, whoa, where I was just tapped in and it it was like this epiphany of like lost and it was, uh, was playing Mozart. Wow. I remember it. I was probably like seven or something. And like, I had, it was like one of these weird, you know, they have all these classical piano competition-y things where you go and they rate you and give you, you know, this BS. And, and I was, you know, seven and I was, and I went, I was going to this thing. I forgot what it was called, but something, you know, that my piano teacher hooked up. And I went to this thing and we walked in and I, I don't know, I don't know if we were late, but for some reason, like, they were like, you are on, like, as we were walking in. Right. And I was, so I didn't have, it was like, I had no time to think. I had no time to even like, I just went right up there and played. And I just remember it was just like, it, the thing kind of just played itself. Right. And I got really lost in like, and I didn't, and I remember I didn't even care. I was like, I don't care. I didn't care about the competition. I didn't, it was like really weird. I just did it. And it felt um, really cool, yeah. you know? And I remember that feeling. I, I still to this day, just like, and then I, you know, I didn't have it every time I played, yeah. but it was kind of like this crazy sort of like, whoa moment. Probably when I was like 11, you know, my best friend growing up, my neighbor, about four or five doors down, his older brother was a drummer, jazz drummer. Gotcha. And at that time, I was trying to play like these popular songs, you know, from a class, you know, from a reading music perspective, like yeah. stuff that I could play for my parents and they're, you know, they would asked me to play. And so I wanted to play like, you know, so I would, I would find like these crazy old arrangements of you know, the standards from that time, but they were all like Carmen Cavallero, these sort of popular pianists that were like sort of more like classical guys playing, you know, these songs, you know, these these popular standards from the 50s, you know, 40s and 50s. And then my friend was like, my friend's brother was like, yeah, you know, you got to come. So he basically was like, said, you got to listen, you got to check out jazz if you want to play that, those songs. So he right. brought me into his room with his amazing, he had his amazing stereo and stuff, you know, and... 
just like popped on all these records. And I remember like, I think Oscar Peterson was the first thing that was just like, wow. He was playing, I think he was playing the song that I used to try to play called Sweet Georgia Brown. You know? Right. Okay. And <laughs> when I heard how he played it, it was just like, I was like, it was like one of those moments just like, oh, it was like, holy, it could be like this, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah, it kind of just blew my mind. And that was it. I just started getting records, listening to stuff, and um, found a jazz teacher down there. This woman, Lee Shaw, who's an amazing, was an amazing organizer. Material hooked me up. Also, would just give me. She really hooked me up on like the you know Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Earl Garner, the old you know the. She really hooked me up with that stuff. But then I was like looking for you know Herbie and Chick and Miles, and I was just everything. You know, I was just listening to everything and anything. This good because you know back in the day, record stores, any you know anything on. Blue Note or ECM or Non-Sex Explorer series, I would just buy it, yeah. listen to it, you know, and hang out in my room and just trip out on it. Yeah, yeah. I I really miss liner notes and records. That was my whole thing. And it's funny because Oscar Peterson was one of the first things that blew my mind, too. My dad used to play Oscar Peterson and, and Art Tatum. I also saw that you played with Jocko at one point, and I know he was in that Fort Lauderdale scene. Um you were like 15 at the time? Yeah, 15, 16. Yeah, yeah I, I was in a band. There was a club there called the Musicians Exchange. Yeah. And um, so I was in this band with, uh, it was Jocko's brother-in-law and this bass player, Charles Nor- Norcus. Right. Who lives out west and he goes by Chuck Doom now. And he um, he kind of had Jocko set up. You know, he had the same bass, the amp, and he was tight with Jocko. Yeah. So we had this trio, it was called Emergency. You know, and it was kind of the first time I, because the club didn't have a piano, I had got a Rhodes and I would just yeah. play the Rhodes. Yeah. And I didn't like, I didn't love the way it sounded. So I got some effects, you know, it was like sort of, a, it was weird. I didn't even, back then I never thought I'd be playing electric keyboards. You know, I was a right. piano player. Right. right. So, but I did this because that's what I had. So I had, I, you know, I did some stuff to like kind of give it a little grit, you know, and um, even back then. And yeah, Jocko would come down. And yeah. sit in like with the band, like you come in like and then just stay up there all night. Right, right. And you know, they were partying. You know, it was it was a scene there. You know, yeah. I wasn't at that point in my life, you know, I was very clean. I was a clean guy. Right. right. And he um but he was they were hang we'd hang and you know, Bobby Thomas Jr. from uh Weather Report used to oh, was, wow, you know crazy. part of the band on and off. And it was a scene down there. You know, a lot of people would come down. It was kinda it was cool. It was really cool. And then I ended up playing like with Jocko. That's what Jocko would call me up to play these little they they, they did these for a while, they were doing these happy hours, right. and we would just play standards. You yeah. know, they got a piano in the place, and we would play standards. So, we, and he would just not move, just dead still, plant feet planted, just walking. I mean, you know, some of the best walking bass on electric you've ever heard. Oh you know? yeah, and we would just play standards. Was he like a pretty big? deal at that point in terms oh, of whether yeah, he was already done with yeah, he was like at the that, end of right, weather report was right, over right. he's he'd already was he was huge you yeah. know and so and he yeah. was partying a lot yeah and there's a whole scene around that you know of course and um uh but you know for me he was super generous really inspiring really nice you know he'd like you know it's We'd he'd sit down at the piano and he'd like just sh- you know sit down and play all those crazy you know super modern poly gospel chords you know his heart you know his yeah. he had a very specific harmonic approach and he could really play piano great and then he'd say you know play me some Beethoven so I'd play some Beethoven shit and then he'd sit down and he'd show me like whatever just play through something you know, like three wow. views of a secret kind of harmonies you know and yeah it was great 
and we and actually I ran it I, the other the other time that yeah so we it was you know this was like for yeah a year or so you know that was a lot we played I played with them a bunch of times and wow. then I ran into them actually this is kind of a funny story that I don't know if I've ever told anybody but I was recording my classical demo to go to school I was yeah. probably like sixteen you know for college you know and he was in the next room over in the studio playing on somebody's some country. I mean, I don't know. So I don't know who's. I don't know who it was or what it was. But he was just playing really simple. And he brings me over and he got me to play piano on like one track yeah. for this guy. And I got one more story that was pretty funny. My, I was studying with this piano player, Alex Darkey, amazing piano player. Okay. Grew up with Jocko. From what I could tell, a big part of the formulation of a lot of what happened musically for Jocko in that in that time, you know, down there in Florida. Yeah. And um, and Alex invited me. This is probably when I was fourteen. Uh, invited me to <laughs> to a gig he was doing at this place called the Banana Boat, man. And Jocko was playing bass, and this, you know, so, you know, a trio. And then Alex invited me to come up and play, and I was like, oh. and then Jocko got off the bass and had this other guy come play bass and got on the drums. Oh shit! And we played Satin Doll, and he like bashed. It was like the most bashing, in like I don't know what it was, but he. And then we got done. And he was came over and like, ah. so he was like, man, I was trying to fuck you up. Ha! <laughs> you did pretty good, man. You held in there. And I was like, okay, great, thanks. That's wow. my first meeting with him. But yeah, but he was like, so it's like it was like Elvin, but like on you know falling down the stairs. Right, he was right, playing. right. He was just like really like just filling. Co- it was pretty funny. But that was the first time I met him. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. But yeah, then he asked me, and he actually asked me to go on tour with him for one of his Japan tours, probably when I was like 16. And my mom was like, no way. Yeah, no way. <laughs> There's <laughs> no Japan way. with Jocko. And I'm it glad. Been, it would have been an incredible experience, but it if it been was my kid, I'd probably be like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I'd do. I mean, yeah. I would have been, a, yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably have a whole different life now. I wouldn't change it. We'll be right back after this short break. Ended up at New England Conservatory a few years yes, after that. Yes, I did. The I Conservatory. Did. I, went, I went to the Conservatory as a classical piano major, yeah. which I switched, and then I switched over after the first year because I realized, I think I went as a classical piano major because I was like, you know, I don't, at that time, we're talking like 83, right? I was like, God, you know, the idea of going to school for jazz seems stupid to me. I was like, I just go right. move to New York, you know, and play jazz. Right. So uh, I was like, all right, I'm going to go, um, I'll, uh, uh, you know, since I played classical music, I got into you know I got into conservatory, Juilliard, Eastman, and all these schools as a classical piano player. I was like, I'm just going to do that, and I decided to go to the conservatory because they had a jazz program, like right. a mo- whereas like Juilliard did not at that time, and it was a weird competitive. It seemed like a really intensely competitive. Like I was never into music as a competitive sport, you know, and so it just seemed like you know Juilliard really seemed like that was its mo. So I went to the conservatory and um, switched over right after my first year to this third stream department, which is being run by Ram Blake. Yeah. That Gunther Schuler started. It was a much more like ear-based, you know, sort of like find your own style kind of thing. Right, right. Right, jazz, whatever, you know, that was sort of the deal. Were you playing out around Boston and stuff? Yeah. With, yeah. yeah, yeah, I was. I, yeah, kind of. Well, yeah, cause in Florida, I play, we call them club dates, you know. Yeah. In Boston, they call them GB gigs, general business oh, gigs. Yeah. But I played, I, you know, I was playing club dates. I was playing a lot of, I played a lot of like, being a lot of big bands, a lot of weddings, yep. bar mitzvahs, that kind of thing. Because yeah. there was a pretty vibrant live music scene when I was a kid, honestly. It was like incredible down right. there. A lot of, because a lot of cats would move from New York 
they got sick of trying to make it up there because there were just as many gigs in Florida and, and the weather was great, you yeah. know? So it was yeah. like great. There were a lot of great players. There were a lot of heavy bands, like, you know, full on horn sections, you know, two guitar players, keyboard player, bass player, backup singers, horn section yeah, yeah. at a bar, you know, just playing. Right, right. It was, you know, it's hard to imagine. It used to be like that. <laughs> but um, when I went to, yeah, when I went to Boston, I was, I would just, you know, go out and just doing that, you know, play some wedding gigs, play whatever. And, and then I got into it. Then that, but that's where I got into the, you know, Hammond Organ was when I went to school. I unearthed one. Didn't, we unearthed one in the back of this practice room, and I never, oh, I didn't okay. even know what it was. You know, I mean, I'd seen them, but I had not played one before. But I, and it's just like plugged it in, turned it on, and it was just like you can do a lot with this thing. You yes. know what I mean? Just the low end. I'm just like started like just checking out just the sounds it could make. You know, you know, not so much considering the the history, even though you know, yeah, of course, I love Jimmy Smith and Larry Young and. Art Neville, I listened to all that music, but I just, I was just sort of just, the, the instrument was like this weird thing we pulled out of the, you know, out of the crypt. So it was cool. So that's when I started getting into organ. And then I got, then I started playing in a blues band about seven nights a week playing organ. You Did know, you have sorta... like a teacher or a mentor on the B3 to kind of, that's, in, that's interesting. That's the thing. I mean, I got to say like when I saw this, something when I first, literally when, it, when we pulled the cover off this thing and realized, opened it up and t- figured out how to turn it on and what it was, it was just kind of like, I was like, oh, it's like, it, it was the teacher. You know what right. I mean? It was just like, okay, pull out one stop, check out, you know, watch the freaking tube spark. You know, it was just like, whoa, man, this thing is like, um, it's, it's a thing, you know. I've always wondered that because, you know, um, first off, I've been like a massive fan of MMW and all your stuff for so long. Uh, and when I first discovered you, I had never heard anyone do what you were doing with the organ, you know, as an instrument and the way you were moving the draw bars around as you were playing in this expressive way. Like, you know, cause I've always been into that on guitar, having the wah pedal and having the phaser pedal and switching all these different sounds, you know, sometimes the greatest players on an instrument, it's just because they were in a room messing around with it and didn't have someone saying, this is how you do this. And this is how you do that. Um, but I've always been curious how you kind of developed the, that ability to, cause you'll, you'll, you'll use it in a, in a whole other way in terms of how you make the, the organ talk. Did you spend hours and hours? I did. Yeah. I did. I, I, you know, it was a combination of, you know, it's, I mean, it's sort of like what I, this is like what, how I like to teach, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's like, I'm a firm believer in like learning as much material as possible, right, you know, right. especially, you know, you're going to study harmony. Like, you know, it's good to know like all the different, everything, all the different ways of looking at harmony, you know, beyond just like, there's so many different ways, you know, to, and, and, you know, to get, you know, for me, like whatever I was into it, 12 tone music, everything, like really learning how like all that stuff works, the mathematics of it is, but then it's also really important to sit down and just explore. Yeah. And I feel like it's two, those are two, different things because like, you know, my rap about this is like you, you learn all this stuff, but then you want to have your connection to it. Right. You know, right. you don't, you don't want to be doing something just because someone else did it or because someone told you to do it because someone, you want to do it because you're really feeling it. That's like really what I believe. So you need, that's why I think it's important to just explore like and improvise, you know, which I, you know, spontaneously compose something from a feeling or from an idea or from, or something programmatic, something visual, whatever it is, and just play it. You know, and then just, you know, if you can record it, great. How did it come out? Does it, is it doing what I thought it was going to do? And then you start to really develop your own relationship with what you're doing. 
You know, with, with what the, like, what is a C major going to F? What is, you know, yeah, we know that works, right? It's a, you know, but what does it really feel like for me personally? So when I'm doing it, I'm really feeling it, you know? Right, and that's right. the same with like, you know, the right. instrument, like the Hammond organ. I would, when I start, when I, you know, when I figured out what the draw bars were doing, it was just instant, like, oh, wow, man. It's like when you think about like how a horn play, because, you know, I loved Hendrix, right? Yeah. It's like, I just wanted to be Hendrix, man. Really, yeah. that's all it is, you yeah. know. And so it's like, you know, this, this the way he would bend sound, you know, and be with the, and and so for me, the organ, I realized like, man, these draw bars by adding these overtones, you can do what a horn player can do with their tone. Yeah. You don't just have to have a static sound like a piano. It's like that's what it can do that a piano can't do, you know. And yeah, piano's great because it has touch and it's percussive and or or it can, you know, you know, you control everything with your hands. The organ, you don't control with your hands. So what you can do for me was like I can use the draw bars as a way to control aspects of tone and volume, you know. Right. And um, but I also like went through this whole thing. So a lot of it was just like being aware of that and then exploring that. But I really went through because you know, each draw bar is an overtone. Yeah. Right in the overtone series, yeah. and I got so that I could play all my major and minor scales, pulling down the draw bars. Right. So, right. like knowing that this is going to be an octave above, this is going to be a fifth above, this is going to be the major third above, this is going to be two fifths above, yeah. and playing it like moving the draw bars and playing it in place. It was like sort of this mind game, so that like I knew what I know what each draw bar is going to do to every note, you know, at any right, time, right. and like what chords it's going to create when I'm doing it. Like to to have that knowledge, but then also to just have the intuitive thing of you know what I mean? It's it's the combination of two. But I, I'm also I'm into you know, I'm into both. So I, for me, it was important like to do that to go through that study of like okay you know what notes you know I, I know that like say the first draw bar you pull down it's going to be the C it's going to be the the root C D E the next one is a fifth above but it's an octave above so if I want to play F I got to play C right right you know what I mean like going through like that and then the, the one of them one of them is a major third so just like just have to do the math okay in order to play B I'm going to have to play a G when I pull but if, if I'm only going to use this draw bar right and like getting kind of really fluid with that you know in major and minor scales and then you know the major scale covers you know all the modes really right you start on a different note you got everything so it covers a lot to do that you know right and were you starting to experiment with that like in those blues gigs or was that kind of something that developed like i started experimenting with the moving the draw bars yeah, yeah you know you know i started you know just experimenting with that a little because you know and then yeah and then i just sort of made that exercise right right and have been i'm still exploring and also like i also like i you know i love because you know i love jimmy smith jimmy mcgriff i love you know i right, love right. all that stuff you right. know jack mcduff i mean i love and i love larry young and larry young really kind of pushed that the sonic thing to a certain level you know absolutely but then i also like love messian like i love classical contemporary classical music and i love and the organ can just be so orchestral yeah you know so yeah. i really got into like man what the hell you know how can i make what sounds can we get out of this thing right right you know i don't know i just like i do all, all the instruments i play i like to just see what they can do meeting uh chris and billy how did that evolve did you did you meet them in boston or was that a new york connection the band really connected in, in new york but i met chris in boston okay i met chris on a gig right at, you know at the middle east oh yeah that's like some yeah, of the first you know, soul live gigs too. yeah yeah, yeah I, gra- I graduated already but he was going to the conservatory studying with dave holland you know oh yeah and he was on a gig i don't know if you knew this guy russ gershon and the either orchestra and those uh, guys yeah, and yeah anyway he, he yeah. uh he I, it was some like small group gig with russ that he had okay i can't remember if it was with a singer it might have been with a singer i don't remember exactly but um and this Chris was on bass, and I was like, "Powerful man, yeah. rhythm and stuff," you know. And then we ended up going on a tour 
to Israel for like three weeks with Bob Moses on drums, oh, Chris yeah. Wood on bass, me, and this amazing steel drum player from Trinidad, PJ, and with this Israeli sax player, Shlomi Goldenberg. Okay. And we basically hung, we hung in Israel for three weeks, you know, all you know, stay in his house. You know, it was like, you know, you know early touring days. Yeah. People's houses, floors, whatever. And just hung out and played a lot. Just we, we, he and I really connected then. And so uh, I, I would get these duo gigs at the Village Gate yeah. you know, a few times a year. Yeah. And I was playing, I played them with a few different people. This great bass player from Seattle, Dan O'Brien, quite a bit, and Reggie Workman. Oh, wow. And, cool. um, but so Chris and I, I just, uh, you know, I just felt like there was something there. So he and I started, you know, working up tunes. Yeah. You know, arrangements of tunes as a duo back then. And then we, we would do like two weeks at the gate because you get the gate. It's a two week yeah. gig. It's great, yeah. you know, every night, you know, five sets a night or whatever. But I had met Billy through Bob Moses. So in a way, like Chris, in a way, like we all connected through Bob because, right. you, know, you know, Bob, we played with Bob on this. And then Bob would call Chris and myself for gigs sometimes, you know, yeah. to back us, because you know, Bob would get called to back somebody up and, you know, like whoever, Lou Soloff or someone coming to town, you know. And he said, Bob put the band together. But I met Billy. Billy was a percussionist. He was playing percussion with, um, with I saw him with like Moses, like that Elephant's Dream record, did a gig at Riles, and I saw Billy there playing percussion. And then oh, cool. Billy was a percussionist in his, in Moses had this Afro some pop-ish band called uh, Mozambo. Yeah, you know, at one point, I don't know if it was called that, but uh, Garrett Sayers and I were played in Bob with like a, I guess we did the trio, and then we did we did a few gigs with, with uh, Bob Moses. Yeah, I mean, probably about a decade after that. He can be harsh, man. I mean, he oh, definitely. Yeah. No, I remember you know, he, that I studied with him. He was like, he was like, you know, brutal. Like, yeah. But at the same time, and he really shared with the younger musicians. Yeah, he played. He loved to play with young cats, you know, and like just, you know, it was really awesome. And and just he liked that energy, and he, you know. And he was very critical, so it was, always, it was kind of always like you know some kind of lesson to play with him, for sure. Which you which you loved and dreaded at the same time. Oh yeah, no, I remember. <laughs> you know, it well. it's like oh yeah. no, what's what's he going to say now? You know, but I, but I learned a lot, man. I learned a lot from him. And so yeah, so I saw Billy playing with him. Yeah, I was just, and I think at one point Billy sat down at the drums, and Bob was like dancing around, you know, and yeah, and I was like, I was like and just like, man, this guy's funky, man. yeah, you know, and so, and he had all the a lot of the his percussion playing was great. And so when I moved to the city, Chris and I had these gigs at the Village Gate. Actually, it started with me and Billy, you know, I started Billy and I. I went over to Billy's, you know, he had this loft in Brooklyn, and we did a duo, yeah, recorded it, just played duo, just hung out, right, and played duo, and then I brought Chris over a while after that because I think I had a Village Gate gig and they were sort of expanding to drums. They were opening up to the trio concept. So I just wanted to see, I just, I just felt like, I just really felt like, man, there's something, these two guys, man, let's see what happens when we get together, you know? And uh, literally the first thing we played, we sat down, Billy started a beat, Chris played a bass line and I played and I ended up transcribing it for our first record. Right, It was right. called, this tune, Uncle Chubb. You know, I transcribed all the piano stuff for the horns and stuff and the, like we just it instantly started like playing it was like instant music sort of right. chemistry it was kind of weird right and a lot of the compositions for the band is that how it came together did you sit down start playing and then kind of yeah well we sort of had a method you know i mean yeah. sometimes i come you know 
sometimes one of us would come in with a tune, you know, like full on Wiggly's Ways, you know, whatever, Wear Sly. I, I brought in some tunes, you know, and then Chris would come in with the tunes sometimes or Billy would come, you know, we all, but a lot of the, for me, like my favorite stuff is when we would, you know, it would be everything from Billy saying, hey, I got this beat. Yeah. I think it would be cool. And then we would just work it out, find something to do on it, you know, and experiment. Sort of like, you know, it's a painful process, I think, for a lot of people because it's like, you know, basically, you know, when you sit down to write something yourself, you just either it flows really easy, right? Or you got to sit there and find that next thing. Where What's yeah. the hell's the bridge going to be? What, you know, and you work it out. You got to, or you step, you have to step away from it and come back and like eventually you can work out this tune. It was like that, but we'd be doing it with three of us, giving our opinions. Yeah. And so it takes a lot longer, you know, to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was worth it. And a lot of times, you know, we would, it would be like that. Or, you know, so one of us would come in with a basic idea or something, and then we'd all play along until we found something that we all agreed upon. Another, the bridge section would either be, hey, let's try this. And we would try it. Or we'd just, you know, look at each other and go to a bridge and see what we all went to. You right, know? right. And, there was a lot of train wrecks, you know, but every once in a while I was like, whoa, that was cool. What was that? You know, yeah. and that's how we find something we wouldn't even come up with on our own because we'd, come, you know, we'd all three do, th we might even have a different version where the one was. We'd have to go back and figure out, like relearn it so that it, you know, right, but we'd right. come up with stuff like that. And then we'd, we'd assemble compositions, you know, like that as well. And, um, and then we had this whole period where we would just, just totally improvise and record it. And we call them seeds, and we'd like find like one little three minute thing that was like, oh, look at that thing we landed on. Yeah. And then we would then we'd make these little tapes of seed tapes, and we put all these things together. We just all listen to them, and then come up with ideas and create compositions like that. And you know, when we did the whole shack thing, we just we would just hang out and play, man. I mean, that was one of the things we would do. We play for hours. Right. I mean, there's a Rebo told told this story about like you know walking by our place. We were playing this groove, and he went and saw a movie and had dinner and came back like five hours later, and we were playing the same groove. <laughs> you know, it would be like that. We would we would just sit there Trance. and just play, yeah. and just try to find and out and just like because you know, as you know, like repetition is a lot about what makes something groove. You right. Know? Right. So like finding the right thing we would just work like that together we just we would just play for a long long time and then just let things slowly evolve like if we had a certain group i would you know those guys were generous enough to be able to play something for an hour yeah and i would i could just explore like what worked yeah and didn't lose the essence of the groove you know because that's right. it right you know it's so right. easy to play the you know something that just pops it out of the groove or you know, but to, to be able to make variations, that's something I think Billy is kind of a master at. Oh, yeah. It's like being able to, to be able to groove, but and, but still, and you know, Zig is too, right? Yeah, to yeah. be able to, like, to be able to keep it evolving, but still grooving. Grooving like you know? so hard, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and feel like this, feel like the song, you know, because yeah, it's, yeah. it's one thing to just be able to play, you know, to play grooving or in time and play all kinds of shit, but it's another thing to like play something that, where they, this is the groove and you can keep the essence of that groove and still create variations, you know? So yeah. that's, we just did that. We just played together a lot, lot, lot like that. I'm curious a little bit about the Shaq, uh, and cause that, that Shaq man album was a huge, a huge one for like my whole crew. We used to listen to that so much. Um, and I always wanted to know kind of like how that came together. Um, and you guys did, it, it, it existed in Hawaii. Did one of you guys go out there and essentially say, oh man, we have to like go create here. And what was the story behind that? Well, it's interesting. Billy, because this is has there's a Moses Bob Moses connection. Man, yeah. Moses had this connection out in Hawaii. Billy yeah. went out with him when he was younger. And our friend Carl had the treehouse and he had the shack. Yeah, and um, 
And I went out to Hawaii with for, with an ex-girlfriend independently of Billy and actually met a lot of these same people. Right. And what, what I, was that on Maui or? No, the big island. The big Hawaii. island. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I guess, you know, so it was sort of, it was in the very early touring years when we put all of our apartments up, you know, we sublet our apartments. Right. We, first of all, it was like, we couldn't afford to like keep an apartment. So we, like, we sublet our apartments, went on the road yeah. and just stayed on the road. We, we kind of all bought this camper together. We're like, you know, kind of committed to this yeah. thing. Yeah. And we just, we're traveling around and then all of a sudden winter comes and it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So we yeah. just packed, we dropped the camper at Billy's dad's and we all went to the big island. Let's go to the big island. You know, yeah, let's, yeah. we'll visit, you know, this, you know, this mythic place, uh, you know, with our friend Carl Green and, you know, you know, Moses, all these stories. And, and so we just, we went there and we, um, did you bring instruments or were there, was there an organ there? Like, yeah, you know? no, we brought, like, I think I brought a Korg, you know, I brought my Korg. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, when we first went there, we ended up kind of in this little uh, a friend's apartment, off, yeah. you know, which was and because the shack at that time he was renting the shack to these guys, you know, to these, you know, sort of I don't know what to call them, <laughs> you know, this sort of like white guys getting in touch with their jungle selves and yeah. like crap, crapping all over the yard, like you know, this, you know, thinking I don't know what they were doing, but they, yeah. it was it was kind of a mess there. Yeah. Carl really wanted them out, so we got them out, and we ended up taking over the shack, and we went out there, and it's in the jungle, no electricity, yeah. no running water, catching rainwater. We didn't have a car, so we had to have, we'd have to hitchhike into town, get foods, come back out there, you know. You know, Carl had a truck that worked every once in a while, and so we would, but we stayed there for like two months, you know, yeah. we just stayed out there and so it became sort of our winter spot like we yeah. go there and yeah. we would just hang for you know two months for several for several years in a row and we and slowly accumulated a few different instruments to play there like we had um you know those we had battery powered amps yeah. i played the organ through a mouth a moose wow. amplifier. you know we had we had a mouse we had those little pig nose yeah, I played the yeah, course, with pig nose you know yeah, yeah. and i mean i think shack made it's all the clav is all through a pig nose wow you know, we got there was a certain vibe we got into around the groove thing yeah. in the shack that we didn't get into anywhere else, you know. And this also the shack had a sound that Billy loved the drum kit that was there. So we just we said, Hey man, like you know, we had this we had a little budget at that time for that next record. Yeah. And we said, Let's just put it into, you know, let's buy some let's get let's get a little solar set up, let's bring some D eighty eights out there and record, you know, we'll travel with equipment. So and we got David Baker. And David Baker was totally game, great engineer, you know, you know, real champion for us yeah. in a lot of ways. Really believed in us and helped us a lot. Yeah, so we went out there, but and I had this guy out there. I had found this uh M one hundred, you know. Oh yeah. Out yeah. there. And yeah. yeah, and I had gotten I had this guy at this electronic shop. I'm like, hey, we're coming back. Can you can you get this thing up and running by the time we get back? And he's like, Oh yeah, sure. We show up, we get there. Uh it's just like, I don't know, May, I don't I forgot when it was. And he's like, Oh yeah, I'll have that thing ready for by July, for you by July. And I'm like, Dude, man, we need it like now. So right. This is what we agreed on. So suddenly we didn't have an organ, and then the whole thing became this adventure of just like trying to get it together to record there. It's like everything that disaster that could happen happened. Right. So we ended up finding in like in one in, in an ad some ad that said big speaker with pulleys for sale seventy five bucks. Yeah. I'm like, okay, if this, is it possible? This I went there. Sure enough, it was a you know a Leslie. Big Leslie cabinet for sale, seventy five bucks. Wow! And they had just thrown the C three out. Oh no! Because it, it had termites. Oh right. So right. I took. So still, you could put a new case of on course, it. Yeah. Of but anyway, so I took the Leslie back, and then we heard about a do, this this dentist in in Hilo that had a Hammond. 
Right. So we just drove up in our truck and visited him and like, he was a local guy, you yeah. know, and, and he, and he knew this place where we were, he used to go fishing back in the day in the area we were in. And, and I don't know what happened. We hung out, I played his organ a little bit and we hung out, we talked to him for a while. The next thing I know, we had the organ in the back of the truck and we were driving to the jungle. Wow. And he's just standing there like looking at us like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know? So we had a hand, we had a B3 yeah. and I, you know, I, and I sent a clav and a pianet, you know? Right, right, right. And I had this little C, this little tiny Yamaha sit, and that was it. So that's how it, that's how we did it. You know, Billy Crazy. had the drum sit there, Chris. And so when we did Shackman, it was like, that was sort of our first experiment too, with like, you know, getting into quote unquote studio yeah. uh, recording because everything else we did was live, you know, always very live. Right. We brought two, 16 tracks of D88s. Immediately, one of them didn't work. So we basically had eight tracks. Yeah. So we were stuck to, we got to this eight track recording. And so what we would do is like, we would just like, just do what you do when you, what they, or what they used to do is you really have to plan ahead when you're yeah. recording. Yeah. You know, that's what yeah. we did. And what we do is sometimes Chris would replay the acoustic bass part after. So that there wouldn't be any bleed, but we play together, and you know, it's just like we just started messing around like that, and, you know, right, simple right. things, you know. guys on a label at that time was that shanaki yeah no we were on uh we were on we were on grab a vision oh, had been bought by Ryko disc oh and right. the poor guy hans man that <laughs> had taken over Ryko didn't know anything he didn't know who we were yeah it was kind of like we were just handed to him with kind of a slightly higher budget than most of the other jazz things you right, know? right 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 it wasn't a lot believe me you know yeah. but and he just did not trust it it was just like yeah. And we wanted a little more money to try to get a really good solar set up, you know, and he's like, ah, oh, you know, it was just a lot of pressure on whether or not we were going to deliver them a record. I, could, I knew when we went out there, they were, they were just like, oh, God, what are they going to do? You know? Right, right. So I felt bad because he literally just they just came in that year and, you know, didn't sign us, had no, didn't know who we were, had no, I mean, I don't know if you remember back then, nobody knew what was going on, man. The oh, scene yeah. was, oh, did, yeah. you know, especially record labels. Yeah. yeah that scene was just happening. Right, right. It's, despite the record labels, you know, this live music scene, what you guys were doing, yeah. you know, we were just out, we were all out there doing it, you know. But, and you guys were like packing clubs, I don't know, you know, during this time, you know, I was seeing you guys back then. Um, what, what, and I know that you guys, you know, Fish had like been a big fan of you guys. Um, but what were, did you guys, were you guys aware of kind of like the jam band scene or what were your thoughts on that scene kind of embracing you? And like, how did that happen? Was it, was it happening before? I, I know that fish, did they have them? Did you guys open for them? No, no, that's that's the crazy thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of stories. Yeah, we opened for them one. They don't have. They never had. Fish has never right, had that's, opening bands. Yeah, that's what I. We played one show before them in Austin, Texas. Okay, that's like what it was. Once. But they used to play our CD Friday afternoon in the universe before their shows. Right. And people right. started asking, "What is that?" Blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah. And it came around like that, and um, I didn't know who they were, man. It's like, yeah. I mean, I remember they came. We were playing at CB's Gallery, and these guys came up to us. They were really nice, just like, "Hey, you know." Love your music. We're from we're in the, we're this band Fish, and I'm just like, oh, cool. And then somebody comes up to me like, do you know who that was? They, they just they were they just sold out Madison Square Garden three right. nights. And right. I was like, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know any. I don't know any. I still don't know anything. Yeah. You know? 
So it was kind of like, whoa. And then, you know, since we became friends after that, and, you know, you know, I love those guys. But I think if you really think about it, though, they're really, you go back to like 91, there wasn't a jam band scene. Right. It didn't right. exist. There were, it was like, we were out there, Fish was out there, Widespread Panic probably was out there. Yeah. And I think maybe Leftover Salmon, you yeah, know? It's yeah. like, there was, it wasn't like the scene that, I think, but that was the beginning, you know, it started. I think there was just, people were so hungry for live music, you know? Yeah. It was just a natural thing that just started happening then. Because in, the, in the early 90s, 90s, it wasn't that scene that was coming to see us play. It was all kinds of, you know, we'd just play coffee shops and rock clubs and whatever. Right. Yeah, I was, I was curious. So when you guys, like, booked a tour, what were, were the venues kind of just all over the map at that point? Yeah, well, we started trying to book jazz clubs at the right, very beginning. Right, right, right. We had a different name for our very first tour, Coltrane's Wig. I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> and that didn't go over so well at the jazz clubs. Right, right. You know, we, so I remember we called somebody up, hey, did you get our press kit? He's like, Coltrane's, what are you, you know, it's just like. Yeah. So we changed our name after that. And, yeah. um, and you know, I think it was, it was just a, it was just a great time, man. You know, it's like we would go out, we'd play, we'd, we'd find a coffee shop in Atlanta. We had friends a few different places in Chapel Hill and Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Then we'd call them up and they booked a couple of gigs. And then we met through them. We met this guy in Knoxville, Chuck Burnley. And we went down and played this jazz club down there, Lucille's. And then Chuck was like, Hey, I really want to get you into like, there's a different scene here. You should tap into. So he had Colonel Bruce come sit in with us wow. to attract yeah. those kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause if you create a rescue. With them. So just kind of like, we just went down, we just were out there playing. I mean, our idea was if we can, if we go out of the city, we can play, you know, more nights a week, this music, because you can't do the same thing, you know, you know yeah, how it is, yeah. you can't play, unless you got a Broadway show, you gotta, you, you know, you could maybe, maybe play once a month in the city, maybe, right, right, you know, right. or unless you do, you can do a little residency or something, yeah. but you can't be can't like working enough to, yeah. you can't keep doing it to make a living. So we're like, right. let's just go on the road. We can, if we can just hit all these different towns and get 50 people to come out every night and we can keep playing this music and maybe survive. You know, that was really the theory behind it. Right, right. And so that's what we did. And then we ended up like meeting all these people and then that would attract their audience. And I think, you know, the, the thing with Fish playing our CD was huge. Right. And I mean, remember going to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, you know, playing this outdoor thing. And it was, I guess we were somehow unknowingly on following Fish around sort of yeah. relative, relative route, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And it was a night off and for them and there were you know all of a sudden there was like thousands of people at this outdoor gig in madison wisconsin just out of the blue right right we were just like okay something's happening here man this is definitely this the fish connection you know helped a lot like that and you know we also went out and did the horde tour you know that was a big thing oh, for okay us. yeah 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 you know i mean just making those connections just that it was a, it was kind of a cool time for live live music you know we'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsors One of my favorite albums. This is right, right when I guess it must have been released before Soul Live started because I think when we were making our initial first album, or if you even call it an album, it was really just us in a room recording, um, like our rehearsals. But uh, a Go Go had just come out, and I had, I had, I was a fan of you guys already. But in Schofield was like my hero. So this, all, that album coming out 
even before I heard it was like, I was so excited for it. And, uh, I, I personally, you know, thought it was the best of all these worlds. Um, cause I just yeah. loved his compositions. I loved your guys' playing and it gave, it gave, it was a whole fresh take with his sound. And, um, so I'm curious how you guys met up with him and, um, a little bit, I wanted to hear a little bit about those sessions and how the songs came together. We're in Hawaii during one of our winter things. And, uh, this is pre-internet, you know? Yeah. So we had this 1-800 fan line and we used to take our once a week trips into town to get supplies and get food, get a, get a whole tuna and bring it back and roast it on the fire. Just like, <laughs> you know, just for, do whatever we do our thing to be, get back out to the jungle, get, you know, we like to, we like to be out there. So, yeah. but so Chris, Chris and I were in town and, um, we, you know, we go to the payphone to check We saw us check the fan line, you know, and there's this message on there. Hey, this is John Schofield. Really like your guys' music. I'd love to play with you, you know? And I was like, what? Played Chris, listen to this. And he's like, "What?" And I'm like, and I was sure it was, uh, you know, Mike Rivard. You know, that yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, "His Mike." I was like, "This has got to be Mike Rivard messing with us, man." I yeah. know it is. Yeah. Just calling him because he would do whatever. He was like, do that kind of thing all the time, you know. I'm like, this yeah. can't be. And I'm like, and I was, and we were just about to just ignore it. I was like, well, maybe we should just call the number back <laughs> and see. And so we called the number, and yeah, sure enough, it was Schofield. Wow. And. Yeah, so he guess he got I don't know maybe I don't know if his daughter turned somebody turned him on to the music he let you know he liked the music and or he, maybe he, I don't know how he heard us but he was he felt something there and yeah asked us to do the record so we came back and got together rehearsed you know he brought in the songs you know and we played them it was I mean you you know you've met you know John he's like yeah. so, he's the sweetest guy in the world yeah incredible I mean he's so such an incredible musician that he's so incredible that he can be nice. You know what I mean? Right, right. And uh, so right. he was like so nice and so generous, but also ve he's very strong. Like he does what he does. Right. You know? Yeah. Like it's like he's, and yeah, he brought in the tunes. We checked them out. We played them. It was real easy. He wrote the music kind of around what he felt, I guess, what he was hearing when we do to do, you know, to sort of bring some of that elements in. And then, you know, we, and then he tweaked a few things, you know, after our rehearsal, we rehearsed again and then we recorded. So it was one of these things again. The chemistry was so easy. Yeah. I've been a Sco fan forever, you know. I, right. F for you know, I heard it with Miles, you know. Of course, yeah. And that era, and then I was really a fan of like the Bar Talk, his trio with Nussbaum and Swallow. Yeah, yeah. I really love. I remember hearing that. I had heard that record thing before. I heard it with Miles, and I just like there was something about that record that was so like you know jazz, but also had had a, had like. I mean, it was, you know, it was like Bill Evansy introspective, right, but right. Uh, but guitar and rock and you know and jazz. It was like really, I just I just remember just really loving, and also you know his like his voicings, yeah. his, you know every note is like, it's really deep, you know what he does. Yeah. So it was really an honor to, you know, to get to play with him and yeah, just one of those things it was natural. Just we we just sort of like we cross. I think this is what happens right. You get together with people and play, and you have certain common denominators. And like our common denominators were like you know. A lot, a lot of different ones, right? You right. know, and I think we, I think, I think for us, like, like you were, I think what you were just saying is it, it, it gave us a certain credibility. Yeah. That Schofield would call this because a lot of people were like, "What? I don't know. I, I like these guys, but I don't think I'm supposed to like these guys." You know, cause right? Three white, three white guys trying to play funky jazz, and you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know. 
even if it, you know what I mean. It's like, yeah. But Sco gave us a certain credibility in the jazz world, I think. Yeah. You know, and being then being a blue note also. Yeah. Like it, it, especially in Europe, it really like Europe was a hard sell. Yeah. You know, and we were just like these festivals would try to get us over there. You know, but they didn't want to pay if you know our, what we and and uh, I was just like, well, why are we getting? Look, we're working. 250 nights a year in the United States. Why are we going to come to your festival for one gig a year? Yeah. And it's going to take up a week getting there and you're not going to pay us. It's like, just, we don't need to come. We don't need to go to your, I mean, it's really, that was our thing. It's like, yeah. you know what? And also guess what? You know, you got, because back then it was like, there's, there's this, all this ego and, and like this whole posturing around the, in the jazz world. Right. And we, that was one thing we were definitely anti from the beginning. Right. Right. You know, and, and the whole jazz festival thing in Europe, it's like this mafia th- jazz festival mafia thing where you have to kiss the right ass to get to the right place. Yeah, yeah. And we weren't going to do that because we didn't need to. We were surviving. And the other thing is like, you know, a lot of musicians needed to do it because there were no gigs in America. You yeah, know, all yeah. our teach, all the people, all our mentors, our teachers, they were like, they'd have to go to Europe to play. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we found a crowd in the United States. We're an American band. We're just playing our own damn country. We don't need to come over there and right, play. Right. That's what we, that was sort of our attitude. Yeah. That said, I love Europe. I love playing there. Nothing against it, but it was sort of like this weird thing. I'm like, yeah. we're not going to come over there and play for no money just because we're supposed to like get down on our knees for you. Yeah, you know. So, Sco- you know, Schofield hiring us to play with them really like gave us a certain credibility that you know I think we're you know indebted to him for that and, and being a Blue Note. We, you know, we ended up signing to Blue Note. You know, and a lot of it honestly was well. I mean, obviously, being on Blue Note was something that we like kind of never even dreamt of but then the then once we were working and there was a bunch of labels or you know hitting us up you were on there and charlie hunter and all this stuff we were actually listening to you know that we were digging what's happening so i was like oh there's like a scene here when you guys did the tour for a go-go it was clyde stubblefield at least at the, the gig that that i saw was it yeah billy, he did that whole billy's tour his wife had just had a kid is that what was going billy on? had just had a kid yeah. it's their first kid he they he couldn't leave he wanted yeah. to be there you know of course of course and yeah so yeah so yeah clyde played drum so it was pretty amazing epic that must have been a blast yeah that was, it was a blast you know did, did you you met clyde right I'm yeah sure you i got, to, play yeah, with I got him? Yeah. to play with him a couple times i mean he's just a sweetheart most beautiful dude man yeah great hilarious to be on the road with like, yeah yeah he used to watch the teletubbies all the time really <laughs> <laughs> like i didn't know what they were you know i didn't i hadn't heard of it yet yeah. I, I haven't had it i actually haven't had a television since 1983 but yeah. um it's also like you know, it's like we're up after a gig late, you know, hanging out and go back, and all of a sudden, you know, get seven, seven, seven in the morning, it calls me on my, calls me on the, you know, hotel phone. Hey, put it on. The Teletubbies are on because he's a guy. So that, that <laughs> woke, woke me up to watch the Teletubbies, yeah. and you know, he was like, he was really like this beam of sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere he treated everybody really sweet. You know, you go to the hotel, he would just, he was just such a good spirit. You know. Right. Right. And. Funky drummer, the the funky drummer. If we're gonna get, if we're gonna exactly. get specific. Speaking yeah. of that, um, you and I have gotten to do some gigs with Zig Zigaboo and yeah. George, which um, has always been a blast. And uh, playing that music is like you know I grew up on those records, and uh, you know it's just been such a such a cool experience. Uh, and and you always you always uh, do your thing with it, but I, I've played I've played that music with a lot of different people, and you always seem to I, I can tell that you've 
studied the sounds. Um, and I was curious, like if, if the meters were like something that you, you know, listen yeah, to man, a lot I mean, coming up. Definitely. It's like one of the Bibles. I mean, <laughs> of course. you know what I mean? I don't, pl- I like, I wouldn't play that music with anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, that music to me is super sacred. I, w- I would yeah. never just hang out and play a meters tune with some guy. Hey, let's play a meters tune. Right. That's right. like, even though I know they're kind of standards and they're, and they, and they are like these, they are like universal. I mean, the grooves and the way they work, the interlocking of the parts is like, it's, it's definitely an important thing to learn, but yeah. God, I just hold that music so sacred, you know, Yeah. that yeah. I don't, I don't know if I feel comfortable just playing that on any gig with anybody, but I if they're going to ask me to come play, they're going to ask me to come, play, you know, if they're going to say, Hey, let's play these yeah, songs with, gonna, with them. Yeah. I, the first time, yeah, the first time I ever learned the music, um, was with the funky meters, which was actually Russ, Russell Batiste on drums, but with art and, uh, and George. Oh, f- and, yeah, that's pretty, that must have been amazing. Oh, dude. And then, and I had to learn all the songs, you know, Ian couldn't make, Ian Neville was in that version of the band and he couldn't make the gig and I had two days to learn, you know, and they just sent me like the entire catalog. They're like, yeah, learn yeah. his 60 songs. But, uh, learning that those tunes did so much for my playing, like learning how Leo, learning all Leo's little tricks. I mean, not that I really no, learned them not, all, but, um, right. It was yeah, but just trying, just trying to learn that music learn is it. like yeah. is is like it's no, it's it's a it's a it's one of the less it's like one of the standard things like that. It's like you, if you want to learn to play grooves, you got to get into that shit. You know, you got to like yeah. either like listen to it so much that you know it inside and out, or try to learn to play it. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, art is. <laughs> I mean, it's it's still like even like when we go like when we go back and play some of these songs these simple, even like the basic ones to go back and just like hear the subtlety of like his comping rhythms yeah you know it's like you can sort of know what it is but there's like it's deep and yeah. he's so deep yeah I remember the time you know one time I was playing the first time I played with George and Zig was with Schofield and the couple of the Dirty Dozen guys on horns oh and man we did a gig at, we did a gig at um, Holland Wolf Wow, did Sco, it, was it all meters tunes? Most, a lot of meter stuff. Well, it was a lot of different stuff. It yeah, was, yeah. Um, but it was a lot of meter stuff, a couple dozen tunes. Yeah, yeah. It was like we, we George kind of came up with a song in rehearsal that we ended up, you know, he, whatever, he you know, called a bridge chord. Yeah. And we came up with this tune and we turned it, we created this tune that was all, one of the songs we played. And um, yeah, but I was, we were playing and they, and they did, they, they just, one of my favorite, just kiss my baby is one of my. Oh you know, yeah, of course. One yeah. of my all, you know, obviously, and they they kick into that, and I'm sitting there, and I'm you know I'm just waiting to come in, and oh, I get this little tap on my shoulder, and I turn around, and there's like Art Neville in a tux. Wow. And I was just like, okay, I just, <laughs> you know, I just got up, man, yeah. and it just like the the first thing he played, he just played like on the clavinet for like three seconds before we moved to the organ, it was just like, I was like, oh, it just slayed me into the earth. <laughs> you know, it was just like so badass and funky and just so, you know, just so perfect. Right. But, you know, right. playing, but also hear, like hearing Zig and George together is one of those yeah. like magical combinations of push and pull. And I mean, come on, it's every bass, bass and drums thing. We, it's everything. We can do whatever we want, Krabs. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we can be, we can practice and, yeah. study and learn and yeah. but if the bass and, if the bass and drum thing isn't happening the band's not going to be happening yeah yeah and that's why drummers can be such jerks yeah yeah they can get away with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to put up with them because <laughs> no yeah. um you've also well that's one thing that, that, but that's one thing zig isn't 
Right. Is a, uh, he's is the, the most gentleman and a sweetheart ever. Oh, I love him so much. Um, we won't talk about all these other drummers we play with, though. Yeah, we won't. We won't. We won't get into Adam <laughs> Deitch. Uh, no. <laughs> No, Martin. <laughs> no, no, we love them. Uh, you've also uh, been uh, drafted into the Grateful Dead world um, and played with Phil and Schofield also has been in, in that band, I think. I think Look that's, who's talking. I know, I know. I, I'm here too. I'm curious, um, you know, how that came together. And were you, did you know that music at all? Or was this like, was that totally brand new for you? I did not know that music at all. Right, right. I never listened to them. I heard them a little bit, never, yeah. you know, I was, you know, I was into like, whatever. I was into what I was into yeah. as a kid growing up. I wasn't the Grateful Dead, right. you know, and when I went to music school, there's like this, it's wild, but there's, all, there's this whole, like, uh, at that time, there was all these sort of classical cats that were really into the Grateful Dead and would, yeah. you know, they had this whole, and this one trombone player, friend of ours had like, you know, this wall of cassettes, Grateful Dead, that he would listen to. And so I think it was 84, 85, I don't know, somewhere in the 86, somewhere in that era, they were going to see the Dead in Providence. They're like, you got to come to this show. I'm like, all right, I want to go to the show. Check it out. And it was like, it was kind of strangely like prophetic and life altering, Yeah, the show. Just more just as a thing. Because at that time I was really, I was going through a whole thing about like, you know, trying to figure out who, what, you know, what am I doing, you know, as a musician? Classical, I do all this different stuff. I'm trying to be a jazz guy, but I'm, am I really a jazz guy? I'm like from some white kid from Florida, you know, what am I, yeah. who, I'm not, you know, what am I, what the hell, who am I, you know, musically? And I, you know, but I also, you know, I really love, you know, I also grew up Bob Marley and Ray Charles and whatever, all, Stevie, all the stuff that was on the radio. I have like, you know, it's not, so I'm not really a jazz guy. Like who, you know, I was into this whole thing of like, who am I, what am I? And how to like, you know, make that part of my music and all this stuff. So I went to this dead show and first of all, I had never been, it was in, you know, it was in some, you know, football stadium. I'd never been, I, you know, I grew up in Florida. Yeah. I'd never been into a stadium with 25,000 people where there wasn't like one fight at least. You right, know? right. Like everybody was just all oh, lovey dovey, and I'm standing there. People are passing bags of mushrooms and passing joints around. It was like all this, like it's like really like this vibe. I was like, what? The, man, this is like wow. This is kind of amazing, you know. And then they played, they, they played, and it was just the music was happening. It was what it was. Uh, you know, I was just whatever digging, you know, digging the vibe. I wasn't really that moved at the time, you know, by the music because right. you know just because the, the event also uh, the event was so overwhelming. I just I was just taking it in, you know. And then they go into that section in the middle where it's like the space or whatever it is, you yeah, know. Yeah. And where they're just sort of like playing noise and fr whatever, like what I would call free music, yeah. you know. And I remember just thinking, I was like, oh god, wow, okay, this is. It was like a dual thing. At one at one moment, the kind of critical part of me was like. You know, what about like, you know, Cecil Taylor and Art, you know, Ornette and Train? Yeah. And then it kind of hit me and I was like, well, wait a minute, man. This is freaking amazing. There's this many people here that have been taken to this point where they're let, where they're just into this, man. There's 25,000 people into this, letting these guys just get free. And yeah. then it really dawned on me, well, wow, there's, there's, there are actually people out there who are looking. I mean, there are this many people that can congregate to like, Try to get that cathartic experience that only improvised music can give. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's the best. Music has a lot of faces. You know, I love all. You know, I love everything. Everything. I love all kinds of music. But improvised music, when it's really happening and when it's really improvised, and it does something that nothing else does. Right. You know. Right. 
it it had this a cathartic thing of just like creation and and you know realization and all this shit that like not not there's no other way to get it and there's you know there's a great song <laughs> done is it does something else that nothing else can do too i mean i'm not i'm not saying that it's the best but it does something no other you can't get at anything else in music and i was like there's all these people here going allowing for this experience to happen. I was like, it was like really amazing to me. Yeah. And it kind of really had a huge influence on what I ended up doing and, right, and having, right. and, and having the confidence and the, the belief that, wow, okay, I, there's going to be some people out there who are going to be able to put up with the shit that we do. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're going to be able to, there's at least going to be at least, a, maybe it's not going to be this many people because we're not, you know, we're not, the rest of our music isn't as accessible, but we, you know, just gave me faith that you can actually get people to that point. It's interesting. Right, right. I remember, I remember that feeling too, seeing the dead and seeing fish and whatever. And, and when, when these improvised moments would build up, you'd see the people get so into it, you know, and, <sighs> and a lot, and they would, and they keep coming back. Cause that's the thing is that that stadium you're seeing the dead in half those people were at the show last night. At least half. Yeah. Yeah. So they want, and it goes, the the fact that the band and and the people are like searching for that high and that moment that um, they keep getting another chance at it. And it doesn't always pan out. Sometimes it doesn't get there. Maybe it, you know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it didn't at all that whole tour. You never know. <laughs> right, and right. They, but people are also looking for that variation. They, they, they're going every night because they, they're looking for the, Differences. Yes. Yes. So you know, I was you know you know there's a lot of what I'd experienced where that everybody's looking for the same thing. Yeah. They want it to be the same every night so they can be relaxed and be comfortable. And to see this many people out there looking for like that, the variation, uh, right, the, the right. variety, the the possibility of something magic happening. Right. Uh, that never had this never happened before. Never will never happen again. That was really inspiring. Right. So it, it, so in a lot of ways, you know, that was like you know sort of an epiphany for me right, going to right, that dead, right. the one dead show I ever saw, and then. Um, we ended up opening up for the dead in, uh, on, you know, at the Greek theater for like a New Year's gig. Really? And that was really cool. Yeah, that was really cool to oh, check wow. them out. Yeah. Cool. And I think, you know, I, I, but before that, when I was still in school, I just remember one partying night, you know, this guy stuck on one of his dead show cassettes and like something came back to me from the concert that was like, oh man, it was just, I re- you got really into it and had fun listening to it yeah. because like some like thread of it, of something from that, that experience that I had had that night yeah. came through. And, you know, so that's how music works too. You know, it can, it can trigger physical memories oh, yeah. and like sensations, right? So it was, that was kind of cool. But anyway, so like I didn't, but going to, you know, opening for them, checking out the music there. Like, you know, I started, you know, just really starting to appreciate the songs, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that's something that like it would Phil called me. He's like, I didn't know the music though. So I had to like, you know, you know, you've done those gigs. Yeah. The set lists are like 80 songs man, <laughs> yeah. for, for three nights. You know, yeah, yeah. he doesn't repeat one song yeah, never, in any set. Yeah. And it's just like, and so I had to like really get in there and like, I had to call my friends, like, but dead dead had friends and be like, man, what recording should I listen to for you? Know, can you send me here? This is my song. Can you send me some recordings? I got to yeah. learn these songs. Yeah, yeah. I love the songs. And certain yeah. songs I really love. Yeah. You know, certain yeah, songs. But just appreciating like the, I mean, working, you know, do, I don't know because I never played with, I haven't played with any of the other guys when I played right. with Phil, you know, right. and I just really appreciate the, his, I don't know. It was great. I, I got, you know, after playing with him, I get it more, you know, I get, I get the spirit, you right. know, it's like, like he's really like, and the fact that he'll use so many different kinds of musicians, different bands, just to keep it fresh and to keep it, he really, and this idea of this, I love the idea that his idea of this simultaneous collective 
conversational improv. Yeah. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, that's just like, okay, you take a solo and make your statement and then you take your, he has this conceptual thing and he wants everybody, he wants this sort of like, you know, conversation to be weaving. And when it's happening, it's amazing. It took me a minute to understand that, you know, um, but I'm, I'm still trying to understand. Yeah, but yeah, when it works, it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, I remember one time we it was with Sco, we in Warren, we we one of these gigs, and I remember after the set, I was like, it was like much more sensitive and more space. Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, that was kind of that was very tasty and cool. And Phil was like livid after the set. Really. Oh yeah, he's like, no, you know, you guys, I want you all to be, yeah. you know, I want you to get in there yeah, and be like, you know, yeah. I want you to be conversing. This is not like, you know, you solo, then you solo. And it was like, oh, okay. I was like, all right. You know, just trying to figure it out. But I love, yeah. I mean, I love those gigs. It's really fun. Yeah, they're really fun. And he's yeah. just such a force, you know what I mean? He's like, at his, you know, to continue on the way he does yeah. it with the spirit he does it, it's really, it's really inspiring. Yeah, and in the fact that he he like works so hard every time and rehearses the band every time, even though I mean he's played this material a million times, but he he, he cares so he cares. much. Yeah, it's like really incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he really like, and he's in it. Like he's listening. Like at the end of the, it's not like he's just all right. Let's go play up the next set. He will get it. He'll he'll talk about what happened on the first set. He's like always striving, always in it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, me too. If I'm even playing, I already don't. I already don't care. Yeah, if I'm playing music at that point and having the fun, I mean, he has fun. He has fun every night. You know, what's next for you? Is that is the Saint Disruption album still um, being created? Is that what you're working on right now? Yeah, it's pretty much it's pretty much done. It'll be coming out soon. We're like, you know, just we're staggering some releases before it comes out. Right, right. And then there's a lot of other stuff with that that, that has happened. We're gonna start this sort of uh, poetry slam kind of thing where we're cool. getting you know, probably once a month put out like a poet music uh, sort of uh, mashup. You know, we're gonna get you know different poets and you know probably either myself or Jeff or together. Are you guys? Thinking about live stuff too, eventually. Well, eventually, yeah. when we can, yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to try to do that. I think that'll, that'll probably happen. If I did this uh, sort of series of solo uh, sets with different uh, musicians here at oh, here cool. at, right here in the studio at Applehead Studios, oh, cool. Woodstock cool. Sessions uh, with for this uh, Mexican university called UNAM. They oh, had cool. this amazing Claudia Curiel. She's this amazing woman pr- uh, promoter there who I've worked with. You know, over the years, who's just really dedicated to music and helping musicians out and just awesome. And she's entered this program at this university and they had a budget for live concerts that was going unused. So she organized this thing where she funded uh, myself and this guy, Mark Urselli, and this, this guy in Columbia to just basically put together these little, you know, these little you know, videoed concerts. So I've got like cool. Zena Parkins, Mark Rebo, oh, cool. y- Yuka Honda doing an electronic set, Jen Shu doing a multi-instrumental set. And uh, I did a solo set. And then I do this sort of band thing with uh, Charlie Burnham, Billy Martin, and Allison Miller on drums. Like, oh, cool. All kind of, all like more in the free, you know, definitely in the free expansive realm. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear what that sounds like during the COVID days. Right, right. It's pretty, it's pretty, everybody's set is pretty intense, <laughs> yeah. I gotta say. Yeah. But, um, so that'll be up there, out there on the webs. Cool, cool. Uh, I got a duo record with Kirk Kanufke, you know, this great cornet player. I don't, I don't. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh, we did cool. a, all, all Sun Ra stuff 
that should be coming out nice, sometime nice. soon. Yeah, the, the Say Disruption thing is a big thing right now. We're trying to get that out there. I mean, I, li- I like the songs a lot. And I mean, one thing you know, one, one thing we can do is we can we can raise money for causes, but the yeah. music is also a cause. You know, it's like <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time, man. It was great connecting with you and, and catching up. And I look forward to hearing all this stuff as it comes out, man. Good to see you, man. I look forward to uh, whenever we're up there playing together again soon. I can't. I know. I hope I hope it's sooner than later. Thanks for doing yes, this, Chris. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank all you. Right. Take care, brother. See you. See all you right. Later, I want to thank John for being on the show. I'm such a big fan of his music, and he's such a cool dude. It was really great to catch up with him. Uh, Before we go, I'm going to play a song off of his newest project, Saint Disruption, and this track is called Instant Gratification.
Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 11.11 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kras plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.